Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Guys, I'm feeling really 90s today. Just I've been thinking a lot about the post-Cold War period and mm. and global interdependence. Mm. That feels very 90s as well. It makes me think of like the gin blossoms and You're also wearing sort of a flannel-esque print yeah. right now. So the 90s makes me think thing. of impeachment. You're very on theme. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's wishful thinking on your part, my friend. Well, I mean it's wishful thinking on Tammy's part too. <laughs> You're feeling like there's some like whiff of the 90s and the foreign policy. National security air. A little, a little hint, a little aroma. A little retro. Yeah. A retro. We're now I'm far watching, enough past that it's cool again. I'm watching Stranger Things, speaking of retro. There you go. But that's yeah. 80s, right? Yeah. Yes. I'm feeling very back in touch with my childhood. Oh, I would like to return so immediately, perfect. please. <laughs> I've been watching Broadchurch. Oh. Which is astonishing. Wow. That's been on for a while. It's great. Since very, the 90s. Very retro of you, too. <laughs> There's no 90s in it. Thanks for keeping up. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Back to the Future edition. I'm Shane Harris. Speaking of um, Stranger Things, by the way, Back to the Future figures prominently in this season, sort of. As it must. I've yeah. never seen Stranger Things. Oh, it's good. You'd like it. Yeah. Season one is by far the best, but season two and three are they're great. They're, they are, it's a lot of like self-indulgent nostalgia, but it's also scary monsters and... Uh, 80s references. So I've only seen, like, I've seen each episode in, like, 30-second segments because my husband's been watching it, and I haven't really been watching it. And I have, like, I have no idea what that show is about. Like, sometimes I'll walk by yeah. and, like, a giant monster will jump out. Big, big monsters that eat people. That's I, what it's about. I feel like they totally missed an opportunity unclear. this season, which is set in, I think, 85. I guess the Back to the Future came out, right? I thought they would have worked Trump into it somehow. Because, like, you know, Art of the Deal, the 80s. Don't know yet. The 80s was his time. Well, his first time. <laughs> second time. Anyway, we're feeling very 90s today here, which we're going to get to on the podcast. I'm here with my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi Shane. On the it podcast is, today. What? I was going to say it is so hot. Oh, God, it's so hot in here, you guys. The it's jungle Putting studio. the jungle in jungle <laughs> yeah. It really is. It really is. If you hear me fanning. Myself. That's why. Uh, on the podcast this week, Joe Biden, speaking of the 90s, <laughs> like, lays out his foreign policy agenda. The Trump administration issues new rules for asylum seekers. And Julian Assange reportedly had some very curious guests at the Ecuadorian embassy and did a paint job. Sounds <laughs> yeah, like, too. Uh, oh. Talk about throwing stuff at the wall. Feces on the walls. Oh, Why did he do that? God, we'll get to it. Remember we'll we used to be it. called spaghetti on the wall to? productions? Yeah. Mm, we good. never were feces on the wall productions. <laughs> Some weeks it felt like it. Uh, <laughs> let's start with uh, – this is our 90s riff, Tammy. Uh, the Biden foreign policy speech last week she delivered in New York laying out his vision for foreign policy. Yeah, obviously, it's a – Big campaign speech. He actually started by saying that political wisdom holds that the American public doesn't vote on foreign policy, but that's an old way of thinking, which I love the intro of being like, most people would say this speech doesn't matter, but stay with me. Um, 
this – I mean you could – half of it was references to President Trump uh, and I suppose that's not surprising since that's kind of Biden's central thesis, right, is that I, he is the anti-Trump. Um, but it, see, it struck me that there was a lot in here that was reminiscent of uh, you know, a, an earlier way of thinking about American foreign policy. Um, what stood out to you in this speech? Yeah, I, I mean I think one of Biden's strengths as a candidate and it's a clear strategic choice is that he does focus like a laser beam on Donald Trump and what Donald Trump is doing wrong. He's not running against his opponents in the Democratic primary. He's it felt like a, a, stump, a stump speech in that way. Yeah, and you know, and so in that sense, this speech was full of very concrete criticisms of the way in which Donald Trump is harming American strength, American security, American prosperity, American credibility in the world. And I think the specificity and the concreteness was wonderful in sort of making the foreign policy case to the extent that voters care about that for why four more years of Donald Trump is dangerous. But in terms of the themes of Biden's own approach to foreign policy and, you know, as with everything Biden does in this campaign, it's both a strength and a weakness that he's coming at this with an incredibly long track record, right? So in theory, you know, one might want to use a speech like this to address some controversies about one's own track record on foreign policy. He didn't do that. He he tried to lay out, I think, broad themes. And, and I think these are themes that as a foreign policy person, I would say, are analytically correct. They are smart as a policy matter. Um, but I'm just not sure that they're the themes that are likely to resonate with cynical and angry primary voters, which is maybe why the Donald Trump criticism was so was so important and so prominent. So theme number one, the kind of central theme of the speech was that the United States needs to champion democracy. He says, um, democracy is the root of our society, the wellspring of our power, the source of our renewal. It strengthens and amplifies our leadership to keep us safe in the world. It's the engine of our ingenuity that drives that economic prosperity. Now, I will say up front, I believe all of that firmly and I support that view. But the fact is that democracy is not working well at home for Americans right now and sort of sort of sort of boldly proclaim this has to be the central feature and he does talk a bit about what's needed to strengthen democracy at home but it's a little bit once over lightly and so i would have wished that he could make the case a little more strongly about the relationship between democracy abroad and democracy at home if he says foreign policy is domestic policy and domestic policy is foreign policy how does that work exactly? Show me. The second theme, I think, and this was the part that felt very 1990s to me, was this sort of doubling down on global interdependence. He talks about nuclear proliferation and climate change and trade as issues that the United States cannot solve on its own. And thus, there's an imperative not only to work with other countries, but as he says, to put America back at the head of the table. There's an imperative for American leadership. And again, I think that's analytically smart from a policy perspective, but I wonder how your average primary voter feels about putting the United States in front of leading other countries to deal with problems when we're not doing a great job of doing that at home. It also seemed like just uh, to linger on that point for a second, there was something that seemed kind of contradictory in this to me, which was he says at one point, as a foreign policy for the middle class, we'll also make sure that the rules of the international economy are not rigged against us. So using the word rigged was interesting. And then talking about the fact that the old – I forget exactly the phrasing that he used, but essentially the old way 
of global trade has to come to an end. So on the one hand, instead of hearkening back to like the kind of the NAFTA era of globalization is like the rising tide, very Clintonian, right, as you right. said, and then also saying that maybe Trump is on to something and that the international economy is rigged and these deals aren't so great and it hasn't fulfilled the promise that we thought it would back in the 90s. Yeah, absolutely. So if you sort of just read the rhetoric, you think of NAFTA, you think of the WTO, you think of – uh, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which the Obama administration negotiated, then Hillary Clinton walked away from on the campaign and, of course, went forward without American participation. So you would imagine that that's the kind of stuff he's talking about. But then he says, no, 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 we got to change the rules. Well, what does that mean then? You don't know, walking away from the speech. I think you know a third theme and one that is very important for Biden to address, given his track record, is use of force. And, you know, he he starts out by acknowledging American leadership is not infallible. We have made missteps and mistakes. You would think there would follow a sentence about his views on Iraq, for example. You don't get that. Instead, you get a very kind of standard middle-of-the-road democratic foreign policy position that, hey, look, we have to protect the American people. I support strong defense spending. But the use of force should be the last resort and only to defend our vital interests and when the objective is clear and achievable. Well, great. That's what every Democratic president has said, you know, for the last half century. So, I, you know, I, I think that there were a lot of things in here that sort of sound good at first glance but ultimately were unsatisfying. And then I think for a lot of the Democratic Party base – the really notable thing is what an afterthought climate change is in this speech. It's like a half a page at the end. And even though he says this is existential, he doesn't really have much to say in terms of what to do about it. Clean energy and we'll rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. So, OK. Um, that said, I think the positive – there were a couple of, I thought, relatively innovative, at least across the primary candidates, elements in here. One is – this pledge on election security mm -hmm. that he developed along with European political leaders and basically trying to get political candidates in democratic countries to sign up not to use hacked information and, you know, not to play that kind of dirty pool that that external actors interfering in democracies are trying to get us to play. And he said, I've signed this pledge. I think all the pro other primary candidates should too. And then he also has this section where he's talking about rallying countries around democracy, he says, hey, we have to rally the private sector around democracy. We have to get the tech companies who have built their whole industry on the back of American openness and American ingenuity and American innovation. They need to commit to doing business according to democratic principles, not empowering a surveillance state like China. Um, and I thought that was a very useful element that I haven't heard from other candidates. But Timmy, did this strike you as a speech that was designed to genuinely differentiate Biden among the primary field or a speech that was designed to make Republicans that aren't so thrilled with Donald Trump feel comfortable with him, right? It, it seemed like it had a foot in a lot of different camps and sort of did you walk away with a sense of, okay, this is who he's talking to other than just make it 2008 again through science and magic. <laughs> And, and more magic than science. 
Hope yeah. it's not a strategy, <laughs> I mean, but it might get you elected. And and actually, I'm not sure 2008 was the target because while the Iraq surge had happened and was you know and had gone well, the Afghani- Afghanistan was a disaster in 2008, and we had to surge there. So like it wasn't such a great year in foreign policy, but. I think that's a really good point, Susan. I do feel like he was trying to address or at least touch a lot of different audiences. But I I will say that I think for the most part, this speech reflected Joe Biden's approach, Joe Biden's views. It It had a core to it that's pretty consistent with the man we know. And so to the extent that this campaign is partly about character and, you know, reliability and a safe pair of hands and consistency. I, I think, you know, if if swing voters or even moderate Republican voters are looking for that, they get that not just from the substance, but from, you know, the relation of the speech to the person. I want to say a couple words in praise of this speech, and I want to say that I've read the first page and a half of the speech and <laughs> not the rest. It was so, brilliant. So I, I, I want to be up. So if there's something bad at the end, no, 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 don't I, tweet I, I wanna, about I it. I want to be upfront about what I'm praising here, which is the headline. And you know, this is a campaign in which there is this giant elephant in the room, and people aren't talking about it. And the giant elephant is the incumbent administration. And if you listen to or watch the uh, Democratic debates a couple of weeks ago, it was amazing how absent Donald Trump was from that conversation. And the great virtue of the Joe Biden campaign, it may be the only great virtue of the Joe Biden campaign, is that he's actually not afraid to talk about Donald Trump. And in his introduction uh, to his campaign in his inaugural uh, campaign speech, he said the single issue of this campaign is the character of the president and getting rid of the president. And in this campaign speech, he opens it by saying there's this elephant in the room and it's the president and it is his deviations from the traditional expectations of U.S. foreign policy. And my proposal is that there are actual American values here uh, and so when – I don't disagree with Tamara's point at all that some of the uh, specific things that he's talking about are relatively pedestrian, milquetoast, 1990s, early 2000s, America, you know, American sort of center of gravity, globalism, democracy, being good citizens of the world. In the context of this current moment – that is a fairly radical set of propositions and interestingly, it's a prop set of propositions that none of the other candidates are actually willing to get up and talk about. And, I, and so I do think he should get some credit not just in passing like, oh, yeah, it's, he's kind of running a general election campaign. He's sort of ignoring his primary opponents, not just in that sense but the actual opening of this speech is fairly dramatic in the context of, of, of this current campaign. And I give him some credit for that, to be willing to say, hey, the issue in this campaign is the president of the United States. Let's talk about that. And let's talk about the values, even the pedestrian, boring 1990s values that we represent, we being, you know, in his account, himself, 
Democrats and mainstream Republicans that we represent that this administration is deviating from. And I actually found it totally refreshing to pick up the text of this speech and see that that's the point at which he started with. In addition, one other, one other brief point. This contrasts rather sharply with the Pete Buttigieg speech and the Elizabeth Warren speech. The Elizabeth Warren speech, which is this systematic effort to connect foreign policy in this quite tendentious way to her domestic priorities of the people against the powerful, right? And to sort of create a unified field theory that doesn't quite work. And Pete Buttigieg, God bless him, who kind of delivers his master's thesis, you know, in the format, has to show that he's really done the homework and know this. And Joe Biden is at a different level of his career, and he's just saying, okay, this is a return to normalcy campaign. The current situation is abnormal. I'm going to bring things back. I'm freaking Warren Harding here. Return to normalcy. And, <laughs> and this guy is a deviant beast. Uh, and I actually think that's a great speech for him to give. <laughs> Vote out the <clears throat> deviant beast. Yeah, and now I'm going to read it. <laughs> right. right, 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 right. <laughs> and I guess in that sense, it's not given how Biden has been campaigning. It's not that surprising. I mean, the, the knock that's developing on him as much as the way that he used to criticize George W. Bush uh, speeches as being noun verb 9-11. Was it Bush or was somebody else he criticizes? No, I no think that it was, was. It was Judy, Giuliani. Giuliani. Now, now a verb Giuliani. 9-11. Noun verb and 9-11. You know, there are some people who are saying it's like noun verb Barack Obama with Biden or encouraging him that he should be doing that. And and I think that um, in that sense, there's also kind of a sense that it's becoming noun verb Donald Trump, right, is that everything he talks about is the anti-Trump. And like literally half of the text on every page is about Donald Trump. I'm going to do this because Donald Trump is doing the opposite. Donald Trump's doing the opposite. I'm going to do this, which may work. But, so I'm not even arguing whether it works or not. I'm arguing that it is a good thing that somebody wants to make that argument. So but I think that's a really interesting question because I think, you know, when I think about other populist leaders who have centered politics around themselves, who drive the political and public narrative the way Donald Trump does, and their elections are referenda on them, on the personality, that tends to benefit them. And it's partly because of that very simple psychological thing that the more you repeat something, that you know, the more it worms its way into people's brains. And so even what you're saying if what you're saying is Donald Trump is a horrible leader because X and Donald Trump is a horrible leader because of Y, every time you say it, you're reinforcing that Donald Trump is the leader. And I think that that's just a fundamental structural challenge for anyone running against a populist leader. Um, I think it's been true for the Israeli opposition running against Netanyahu. I think it's been true in other cases. And I think it's true in the 2020 campaign as well. And so while I understand that it's really satisfying and I think intellectually important to lay out what's so awful about Donald Trump and why it matters, um, and I agree that the base wants to see somebody who can attack Donald Trump effectively, I just don't know if that is politically 
effective at the end of the day. We'll see. I mean, I will say that the format does seem to highlight the format of presentation, sort of the sense of which Biden is speaking to a bunch of wonks, whereas Donald Trump is speaking to the people, right? He gives this speech in a classroom at CUNY in New York. It's it like a very City University of wonky, New York. It's not Princeton. But I mean. he's delivering it off a teleprompter. Just like sort of the, the optics of it really were not a, I'm speaking to the American people about reclaiming this on your behalf. And, and to the extent that that ends up being... A, a sort of a line of attack that Trump employs. I, I just I, I found it surprising that he wouldn't have have delivered this in a in a more sort of energetic crowd. There's something about the optics struck me as a little well, bit strange. But it also struck me as that I mean this this speech is very low on ideas. I mean, and, you know, you'd mention that climate change being an afterthought. I mean, where's the discussion about what's happening in Syria? Where's yeah, the discussion about Europe falling, that, falling apart at the seams? I mean, yeah. the world is a pretty topsy-turvy okay. place right now. But and can we not, be not, honest? And not to like, We're the only ones who care about that? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. Like, yeah. But, Joe Biden, but Joe Biden, you know, his career in the Senate was marked by a chairmanship from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was the vice president for eight years. You can't tell me that this is the sum total of his thinking on foreign policy is just elect me. I'm not Donald Trump and he fucked everything up. Well, and is is there – I mean there were a, a couple of small references here about his own record. But you know, does he really not have more to say about what's positive in his own record or what he's proud of in his own record? But I think even on attacking Donald Trump, there – you know, the, he didn't quite bring it home. He The nut graph – of this speech or the nut sentence of this speech is, if we give Donald Trump four more years, we may never recover America's standing in the world or our capacity to bring nations together. Well, that's not what it needs. You know, the, the point in critique is if we give Donald Trump four more years, it's freaking dangerous. Like that that would be the foreign policy critique of Donald Trump. And I think that that, that got buried a little bit in this yeah. speech. All right. President Trump, gosh, to bring it back to him, it's always Trump, Trump, Trump. Trump, Trump, Trump. Always about Trump and what Trump is doing. You'd think he was the president. Trump administration has declared that they're going to change U.S. asylum policies uh, in, a, uh, in a regulatory move essentially this week, an, inter- an interim final rule. Susan, you'll be able to explain what that is in a minute. Um, but essentially the, the rule change would be aimed at slowing the influx of Central Americans who are crossing the border with Mexico and it would just restrict access to our asylum system for anyone who did not seek protection first from other countries before crossing the southern border with the United States, between Mexico and the United States. So Susan, explain to me a little bit about just to start with, how exactly is this legal? Because my understanding of asylum law is that it's pretty broad in this country and essentially says once you get here, regardless of which countries you went through to get here, if you have a credible, articulable fear about going back to your home country, you can apply for asylum. So how does this how is this going to work? So early on in the Trump presidency, Ben coined this term malevolence tempered by incompetence. Um, this is what Still it looks holds. like when you have malevolence with extreme competence, because this is the Trump impulse, which is fundamentally an impulse of cruelty and disregard for international law paired with a very shrewd operator. So essentially what the U.S. government is pushing for, and they haven't been able to do this yet, is to designate Guatemala and potentially Mexico as what's called a safe third country. So 
The way domestic law works, right, so it's not just international law that governs asylum, but also domestic law that implements it, says we have to, um, we have to consider asylum claims that are presented at the border, except there is this other category. Uh, and there's a category of exemption of anybody who's passed through a safe third party, right? So the idea is if you're already safe where you are, you've invalidated your claim to enter the United States. You have to claim asylum basically in the first place that you reach Uh, that you reach safety. And so the Trump administration has been pushing on the Guatemalans uh, to sign one of these bilateral agreements. There's a number of sort of conditions that you have to to satisfy. What it would mean in practice is because most of the migrants are coming from Honduras, El Salvador, uh, and Guatemala, what it would mean is the only way to claim asylum at the border would be to arrive by sea, right? So if you pass through Mexico or, right, if you pass through Guatemala, you have to claim it in Guatemala. If the Guatemalans get through Mexico, they have to claim it in Mexico. If Mexico was designated as a safe third party, only Mexicans could claim asylum or attempt to claim asylum at the border, right? So it's a way to effectively say nobody gets to to claim asylum. Now, the way the law works is there are these conditions, right? You you can't just say you're a safe third country and, and that's the end of the story. There has to be an actual bilateral agreement in place. And the country actually has to be able to guarantee, and the law says, uh, safety, security, and due process for asylum seekers. So there is nobody who believes that Guatemala is in a place to provide safety, security, and due process for asylum seekers. The problem is that under the Refugee Act, the attorney general designates whether or not this safe third party agreement is valid or not. And the law specifically says that no court can second guess the designation of the attorney general. So now we start to see what Trump looks like when he has someone really, really smart in place like Bill Barr who says, hey, if you can pressure the Guatemalans into signing this agreement, if you can pressure the Mexicans into signing this agreement, and I can sign off on it, and it doesn't matter if it's legitimate in practice, there's no way to get any kind of judicial review here. And so we'll see. We've already seen um, the Guatemalans canceled their visit to the United States amid sort of pressure. Their constitutional court has indicated that, uh, that the Guatemalan government wouldn't be able to sign one of these agreements. So there's a lot of moving pieces here. But it is an area in which if the Trump administration is able to kind of bully its way into getting one of these countries. And this is a big hammer they're holding over the Mexicans' head to saying, hey, if you don't, if you don't stem this flow, we're going to really, really push for you guys to, to force you to sign one of these safe party agreements. They could dramatically alter you know, the number of people who are eligible to claim asylum at the border. Can I also say, like, I, I think as a matter of bare-knuckle politics, the way that the administration has gone about this with Guatemala is less than adroit. I mean, yes, the United States has a lot of leverage. But when you demonize a country, treat it at the diplomatic level very poorly, then you cut off all of your assistance and only then do you come up with a set of demands. You know, you're not actually using your significant leverage in the most effective way. Now, they may be able to to make this happen anyway, Susan, for the reasons you say. But I also have to point out just how preposterous it is 
to designate Guatemala as a safe country when another arm of the U.S. government, that is OSAC, um, an agency that's all about telling Americans and American businesses where and how it's safe to go in the world and works with the State Department on this. Guatemala as a whole is level two exercise increased caution and six provinces of the country, including the capital, are level three reconsider travel. It says, violent crimes such as armed robbery and murder is common. Gang activity such as extortion, violent street crime, and narcotics trafficking is widespread. Local police may lack the resources to respond effectively to serious criminal incidents. And that Bill Barr is not only, I mean, he's able, clearly, as you noted, but that he is willing to make this designation in the face of that judgment from Part of another part of the federal government, I think, just shows you how far they're willing to go and how, as we've seen in many, many domains, how utterly shameless they are about pursuing this agenda. And keep in mind, this is yet another example of sort of Stephen Miller's policy, right? This is not about illegal immigration. This is about legal immigration. And so we see Trump's dehumanizing comments uh, about asylees, seen his suggestion that most of them are faking their credible fear claims, something that is not supported by evidence at all, and now moving into this, and oh, by the way, we aren't going to let people claim asylum, all against the backdrop of this purported conversation about illegal immigration. We are talking about lawful immigration here. Yeah, so I want to say not words in defense of the administration's policy here, but a few words in defense of the difficulty of the problem. And this would be a difficult problem even if you had a responsible administration which, and even one that was not demagogic, which you do not. Um, but the problem is real. And so first of all, the safe first country rule, the safe third party rule is, a, is an important rule. And it stands for the idea that when you leave a country under duress because you're facing political persecution, there's not really a forum shop where you get to go to any country that you want to. The first country that you get to that's capable of providing you asylum is the one that's supposed to do it. Well, and, and the other part of that principle is that every country is obligated it, to provide asylum. Exactly. It doesn't matter if you're poor or rich or whatever. And so the question of why very large numbers of people are transiting the, the country of Mexico to get to the United States to claim asylum rather than claiming asylum in Mexico and why Mexico does not have to take more responsibility for that problem is actually not an illegitimate one. Now, Guatemala may be not in a position to do that and Mexico is in a somewhat compromised position to do that. But the idea that huge numbers of people get to transit Mexico in order to, to make asylum claims in the United States is a little bit counterintuitive from an international law point of view. The second point is and you know that while I agree with you, Susan, that these are illegal asylum claims and this is not a situation of illegal immigration, the vast majority of people who are making these asylum claims, when these asylum claims get finally adjudicated, they are in fact rejected. And so the category is immensely over-inclusive with respect to people who have actually ultimately valid asylum claims. Now, some of that is because uh, asylum law is pretty restrictive and there are things that perhaps we should 
be more solicitous of claims that we're less solicitous of than we should be. But part of the reason is that a very large number of these people are actually economic migrants, particularly from Guatemala, where you know there has been a true you know, climate change driven actual actually collapse of a lot of the coffee agriculture and a lot of these villages are simply no longer economically viable. And so while there are people coming from, you know, gang controlled areas where they are being in, you know, particularly from El Salvador, where there are a lot of valid asylum claims, there are also a lot of people who these claims are not valid. And so I do think between those two issues that you have very large numbers of people who are fundamentally economic migrants and states in the way that should be under international law taking more responsibility for this situation than they are. There is a serious problem here that prior administrations were struggling with even before this particular gang of thugs decided to become the government of the United States. And I don't want to lose sight of the fact that there is actually a serious, serious issue here. Now, is this the solution to it? No, I don't think it is. But I, I also don't want to be dismissive of the problem that they're responding to. I, I'm not dismissive of the problem at all. But I think there are two starkly divergent policy approaches to tackling that difficult problem. One is, you know, throwing up a wall and saying, you don't get to come here. And the other is one that recognizes that people are transiting Mexico because Mexico is also having record level of murders, of gang violence, and the government admits publicly that it cannot provide security. And so it's not I mean, you say Mexico should take more responsibility. It has a new president that's trying to improve security in his own country. The obvious policy approach is to help the Central American countries and Mexico deal with their security challenges, not to simply say, this isn't our problem. It's your problem because you're between them and us. Well, that's not really what I said. Look, my point is not that we should not be helping these countries. We absolutely should be helping these countries. Right. So and, there are two different and, policy and approaches my, here. And my point is also not that uh, we shouldn't be allowing major migrant flows. I actually think if a large number of people from Guatemala want to come to the United States, that doesn't trouble me. And we should have legal, easy alternative paths to entry to accommodate these large numbers of people who want to come here. And that actually doesn't give me any anxiety. If you're talking about this as a matter of asylum law, it is a pretty complicated problem. So it is a complicated problem, but I sort of reject your premise. If the idea is, you know, that that most asylum claims are adjudicated to not be meritorious, that doesn't mean that we should eliminate the system by which those claims are adjudicated. Well, right? I agree so, with that. So there are other right there are other mechanisms now. Conversations about designating Mexico as a safe third party country have been going on for a long time, and and that's a complicated question. Designating Guatemala as a safe third party country as a workaround is sort of it's ridiculous on its face. And so while I take the point that this is an enormously complex situation, I have no sympathy for the idea that the way this administration is going about it is essentially 
perverting the law by by using these mechanisms because they can't actually accomplish what international law and domestic statutory law would actually require. And I think that there's another dimension here that goes beyond this specific policy issue. And I mean, and and you went into this in your intro, Susan, but the method here, the means that the administration is using is one of, you know, exerting its authority so as to subvert the pos- the intent of Congress and the possibility of judicial review. And that should trouble us no matter what the substance right. of the policy issue is. And people with meritorious asylum claims should be allowed to make them in the first safe country they reach, which is currently the United States of America. And so the idea of we have a problem of over-inclusion, therefore we're going to say even meritorious claims can't be adjudicated here. That strikes me as a really problematic solution. So so first of all, I, I actually I think you're yeah, I think there's I don't disagree with a lot of that, but I think it's imprecise in important ways. If you are fearing gang urban gang violence in in San Salvador, it is possible that Guatemala may be your safe first country. Now it's not I wouldn't say that as a blanket matter for Salvadorans, but but, but, but these are individual inquiries, right, and, and they have a right to have that adjudicated but, but through the normal process. And so the question, the, so but here's the question, and I don't actually know, and you know, listeners who know who know the precise answer to this, you know, it is perfectly possible to flee across the border to Guatemala City and apply for asylum in the United States at the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala City, and so the question is. You know, for the universe of people who are coming, transiting Guatemala, why isn't it reasonable for the U.S. government to take the position, hey, if, if Guatemala is your transit country, we expect you to use embassies and consulates rather than showing up at the border. Because the safe third party designation is not – a safe third country designation is not as to an individual person. It's whether or not the country is able to ensure – access to due process and safety as a general matter to satisfy a bilateral agreement. And so it's not that maybe one person might be safer than they were in their country of origin if they're fleeing gang violence. It's whether or not this country can meet this definition and the holistic conditions. I would even argue Mexico probably can't uh, can't satisfy these standards, but Guatemala certainly can't. And so you, you can't sort of cherry pick, well, for this one individual because the law demands that that they meet the statutory definition or, or the statutory threshold to get this designation. Well, while we're on the subject of political asylum. <laughs> that was good. Oh, nice. That nice was one. good. You've been waiting for that. Yeah. Does Ecuador meet the, the safe? <laughs> Does the country? embassy of Ecuador well, in let's London? Let's just say that I'm pretty sure that the room that Julian Assange was staying in at the Ecuadorian embassy Definitely after the condition he left it in is not safe for third parties or any parties. Yeah, not after he was done with it. He may have been having a few parties in that room with some Russians maybe even. Um, CNN has a really interesting story out this week uh, just citing from the lead here. New documents obtained exclusively by CNN revealed that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange received in-person deliveries – Potentially of hacked materials, so like not pizza and dry cleaning, potentially hacked materials. Well, it doesn't say he didn't get pizza or dry cleaning. It doesn't say he didn't. That's true. Later, the 2016 U.S. election during a series of suspicious meetings at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, um, CNN appears to have gotten its hands on surveillance reports compiled for the Ecuadorian government 
by a private Spanish security company. Right. So why did they hire a company to tell them what was going on in their I guess own the, I guess embassy? maybe they're not so good at the – that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> chronicling Assange's movements and providing a window into his life at the embassy, one of the findings was that in June of 2016, when the DNC emails were being published on WikiLeaks, Assange was back at the embassy – uh, and they setting CNN, members of the security team worked overtime to handle at least 75 visits to Assange, nearly double the monthly average of visits logged by the security company that year. He met Russian citizens and a hacker later flagged in the Mueller report as a potential courier for emails stolen from the Democrats. So, Ben, this seems to be putting a lot more flesh on a kind of narrative we kind of already understood. It goes on to talk about how we turned the Ecuadorian embassy sort of into a nerve center, command center, uh, outfitted with all of the high-speed internet devices and capabilities he needed to be leaking the emails, but makes it sound as, as the way CNN put it, that Russia came knocking and, and, and Assange, who is denied up and down that he received any help from the Russian government and, you know, implied at one point that Seth Rich was his source and that's why he was murdered. It appears to be that anyway that the Ecuadorians have charted out a fairly compelling argument that, nope, he was getting deliveries of material from the Russians. Well, or at least from Russians, yeah, right? from Russians. I, I mean, look, anybody who has spent any of the last few years wondering if – Julian Assange is a crusader for openness and nothing more um, uh, and maybe some kind of journalist. And that includes, you know, a lot of journalists who have made that mistake, including news organizations that have gotten way too cuddly in bed with him at times. It has included, I'm not looking at you, Shane. Um, <laughs> It includes a lot of people on the left traditionally and last year or in 2016 and it included a lot of people on the right. And anybody who has spent time indulging that delusion, the information at least since the Snowden period that Assange was some kind of witting or unwitting front for Russian intelligence was unsubtle unambiguous. And uh, this is more evidence of that. Now, is Julian Assange a Russian agent or is he some kind of useful uh, front that they have funneled material through perhaps indirectly? I don't know. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I have my suspicions, but I don't honestly know. I can't imagine anybody could read this story and not think that he had some inkling that the sources of his information were perhaps associated with the SVR. And he certainly could not have possibly believed that the source of his information was Seth Rich, which was what he implied in an interview with a Dutch television reporter and the fact that he was actively lying about his sources of information in a fashion that supported a story that we now know to be the creation of the SVR suggests that he may have been a more witting participant than, say, dupe of the GRU hacking material. 
So look, what's interesting about this story is this is one of the areas in which the Mueller report explicitly said it couldn't reach a conclusion. So they give all this evidence about emails between WikiLeaks and DC Leaks and Guccifer 2.0, including things like headlines. I think it says big file or file transfer or something like that, right? They can't actually see the contents. There's lots to suggest that the mechanism by which the hacked emails were shared with WikiLeaks was an electronic transfer. But then the Mueller report says, we can't rule out the possibility that at least some of these emails might have been related to an in, might have been conducted via an in-person transfer. So basically, we just don't know. So what the CNN report says, and, and it's pretty astonishing how sort of detailed it is, it sort of tracks not just that Assange ran this sort of command center out of the Ecuadorian embassy, and it has a lot of really interesting stuff about the power he wielded within that embassy, including threatening to get the ambassador himself fired. And what a sort of nightmare house guest he was. Um, But that he met with, you know, he met with a series of Russians, including on some really suspicious dates, has a lot of uh, of detail, including that one was with a Russian national named Yana Maximova, which seems like a made up name, but uh, but is not. Um, And so what it does is it uh, it fleshes out the idea that he was being visited by Russians and by people who might have been intermediaries to actually pass this information. You know, I don't think that there was ever any genuine question about whether or not Assange knew, whether or not he knew where this information came from. It had been known for months and months that the DNC had been hacked by the Russians. The U.S. government had, uh, you know, sort of in this period, uh, they'd been first reported anonymously in the the press, then an official U.S. government statement on it. There was no real question there. One thing that is really interesting, though, is one sort of premise I've had, and I think we've talked about on the podcast, is this idea that Mueller's investigators are as good as we were going to get. And so whatever the Mueller report was able to unearth, whatever questions they weren't able to answer, no one was going to be able to get answers to them. This puts a little bit of pressure on that because it says, hey, just a few months later, gosh, we have some new relevant information here. And so I do think, you know, not to say like, maybe there was collusion after all, or like that the story's not over. It, it does a little bit say, like, how did the Mueller people miss this? And how did they miss these logs and, and these visits? And, and it just suggests once again, that um, there's a lot more out there. What's in the Mueller report is itself completely astonishing, completely damning. And yet, it does feel like we still don't have the full story of what happened here. Yeah. And I also have to say that reading about the role that he played in this embassy and Shane, you mentioned this, like, and the fact that they had to hire a private company to assemble all this information and the, the autonomy that he operated under within the embassy. I mean, it just begs so many questions about how the decision was made and why the decision was made to give him asylum. What is it he has on the Ecuadorians or on, uh, you know, previously in office Ecuadorians that created that situation? How is it that he, I mean, what was it? It wasn't just a threat to get the ambassador fired. He must have had some information, some relationships, something that gave him an ability to make that kind of threat real. And it makes me want to know a lot more about Julian Assange that seems to be hinted at in this story. And I, you know, if there are other UC Globals out there that have done other kinds of reports or if there are other enterprising reporters, I really hope that we can 
get a fuller picture of this guy and just, I mean, what a sociopath he is. It also is another, you know, elections have consequences and not just <laughs> Donald Trump winning, but right. uh, Moreno winning right. as well in Ecuador, right. that, uh, that his fortunes also seem to have turned on a dime uh, when uh, leadership in Ecuador changed. And let's remember Roger Stone when he goes to trial. Presumably, we're going to learn a lot more Oh my God! You're right. Those those sort of key portions of Donald Trump's hunger for emails and keen interest in WikiLeaks are tantalizingly redacted in the Mueller report because they pertain to grand jury information, which we think is the matter concerning or ongoing trials concerning Roger Stone. So, speaking of Roger Stone, he was in court today, and at what point dressed very (laughs) nappily? At what point the judge asked him? What part of my order was unclear, which is never a good sign whenever you're in front of a judge. So no more tweeting, no more Instagram posting, no more Facebook, nothing for him, right? This was the order? Confiscate the phone. What part did you not understand? So here's the question. What is the nearest safe third-party country for Roger Stone? Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, I will go first with mine. Uh, Saturday marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, um, which will not surprise any listener of this podcast to know is a cause for much joyous celebration for me. I think it's great. The past couple of years, really, there's been some amazing documentaries, films about the moon landing, which, since I'm just hating on conspiracy theorists this week, shut up about the faked moon landing and they're already... <laughs> Go back to your holes. See, Can I Shane, just... he believes in aliens, but he doesn't believe in the fake moon landing. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. The man has his limits. Um, but it's an interesting reminder for, for the kind of statistics that we discuss, which is that obviously you know, the moon landing was an event, um, you could probably argue, as I probably would, one of the greatest you know, technological uh, and exploratory achievements in human history driven by national security imperatives, competitions with the Soviet Union, the rocket race, the space race, the satellite race. The and with to... all kinds of spinoffs for innovation in American industry. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible. But, you know, at its core, absolutely is a imperative to beat the Russians to the moon uh, and to a large degree to fulfill the legacy of John Kennedy, um, who the was the one who called The moon is the safe third party. The moon is the safe third party. Can we send Assange to the moon? <laughs> Raise your hand if you want to send Assange and Honestly, and I would rather Stone go to, to the, the moon, moon and leave Assange here. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Get Let's away go. from the smell. Um, but it's, an inter- it's also occasioned some interesting you know, uh, articles and you know, this is food for thought uh, really more than anything um, this week on the question of going back to the moon and going back to Mars. And we don't have a national security imperative, at least that I really well That's articulated That's what you think. One. It's because you don't know about the Martians. Well, you know, my space. national security imperative, right, is that the world's going to end, so you got to get off the rock. Right? <laughs> we got to go find some place else to live. I've been banging that drum for a while. It's not getting major traction anywhere. But it is very interesting to think about. You know, I think when a lot of people look back and say, my God, it was 50 years ago that we landed on the moon, you know, with systems that had less technology than, you know, what's in our pockets and our phones. And they say, oh, gosh, it's so terrible that we haven't progressed any farther than that. Well, we haven't had a great motivation and a reason. And it seems like we're probably not going to have one. Uh, so I think it's an interesting, unless the Chinese decide that they're going to launch a Mars mission. And even then, frankly, I'm not sure that a lot of Americans would necessarily get behind it. They might say, go ahead, explore Mars. What the hell do you want with a dead rock? But it's just fascinating to me to think about 
about that that motivation being gone seems to have in many ways taken a lot of the wind out of the sails of uh, the space program. And, you know, to some extent, I, li- I want to believe that, you know, it was humanity's desire to reach beyond our world and to know more that was really behind it in, in, in uh, 1969. But it was but also... But sometimes I wonder. Yeah. I mean, it was a <laughs> cultural moment when there was tremendous faith in science and what science could do to push the boundaries of human achievement and human knowledge. And I think going to the moon was part of that because it just seemed impossible. And to make the impossible possible is what the 50s and 60s were all about. But I will, I'll just say that for those of us who were born in 1969, that 50th anniversary is big in many, many ways. Yeah. Like I remember growing Mixed up. blessing. Yeah. Growing up and going to touch that moon rock at the Air and Space Museum. And for those of you who are in D.C. and want to commemorate the 50th anniversary, there are all kinds of cool events. And if you go to DCist, you, there's like a like, comprehensive list of all the cool things going on. Awesome. The Mars mission is Shane's foreign policy. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just sidestep the whole thing. Get Rational yourself another planet. Is brought to you by Mars. DCS. <laughs> <laughs> you got a freebie, guys. Uh, uh, ben and Susan, you guys have a joint object. Yeah. So, Not a joint, but a joint object. So uh, we have a joint, too. Shane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was that about? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> really, Shane? This <laughs> is the Scotch and Whiskey podcast. <laughs> so uh, Susan and I have been working on this cool project for the last few weeks, which uh, we are getting ready to release this week. Right, Susan? On Friday. So Rock on wood. Yeah. So uh, Bob Mueller was complaining that people hadn't read his report. And he was saying he didn't want to testify. He just wanted to read the report. So uh, we decided we would do a a serial-style narrative podcast about the uh, actual story that the Mueller report tells. And so Susan is hosting it and can, can tell you a little more about it. And we actually have a snazzy trailer. We have a snazzy trailer. Have you guys heard the snazzy I've trailer? I've heard the snazzy trailer. I have. You guys have for... upped the podcast game here at Lafayette. You're, you're going to hear it again. Breaking news out of Washington. Special Counsel Robert Mueller has concluded his investigation and delivered his final report to U.S. Attorney General William Barr. On April 18, 2019, the Justice Department released the redacted Mueller report to the public. The 448-page document details a story that has captured America's attention. From Russian plots to interfere with our election to constitutional questions of executive power, the Mueller report is potentially one of the most important and consequential documents of our time. But there's a problem. Very few people have actually read it. Two years ago, the acting attorney general asked me to serve as special counsel, and he created the special counsel's office. It is important that the office's written work speak for itself. It contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions, and the report is my testimony. The charges say it was the work of 12 officers of Russian military intelligence. The report did not clear the president of obstruction of justice, who relentlessly sought to use top White House staffers to, quote, curtail the investigation. That clearly stated that the Russian government was in fact behind the interference operations that we were seeing at the time. If you endeavor to obstruct justice but fail, 
it's still a crime. If you obstruct justice, but it turns out there's no underlying crime, it's still a crime. There was no collusion with Russia, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. The Mueller report outlines disturbing evidence that President Trump engaged in obstruction of justice and other misconduct. They made a decision that there was no obstruction, so that makes it a complete and total exoneration. I don't know any other way to look at it. There is still so much confusion about the report, what it says, who it implicates, and what it means for our country. I'm Benjamin Wittes. And I'm Susan Hennessy. At Lawfare, we are distilling the report into a multi-part audio narrative series, telling you the story of what's in this document, the story Robert Mueller wants you to understand. And I will close by reiterating the central allegation of our indictments, that there were multiple, systematic, efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American. To learn more, subscribe to The Report wherever you get your podcasts. Wow. So cool. Good, 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 good. And Shane's on it. I am on it. Shane, Shane's, yes. Shane's in the show mm-hmm. talking about Peter Smith. Yeah, I did yeah. an interview for that, which was so much fun, actually, because it was great to just be able to step back and sort of try and tell See the story as a story. See how right you were from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I was I right all along. I told you, that old man. And it's been fun. This is our first, like, all kind of lawfare project. Like, everybody's doing some stuff related to it. So Quinta's been doing kind of all the interviews mm-hmm. and – and Michaela has been uh, helping Susan write the script, and I've been a kind of brooding omnipresence. Uh, like, That's your uh, job description. Yeah, right? it's it's my my Ken job Wood description. Is brooding omnipresence. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's going to be great. Check it out. And people will be able to get it by going to your podcast app and looking for The Report, you right? You can subscribe to it now. And right. the first episode should be up on Friday. Fantastic. Is it going to come out all at once or week by week? No, week by week. Week by week. So you'll have to tune in. <laughs> we don't want to spoil the ending for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Rational Security, of course, aww, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at Lawfare Blog. Dot com. You can get uh, Rational Security Moon Rocks, uh, other podcast paraphernalia at Go to the Moon Podcast Store. What's it yeah. called? Uh, go to the Moon Podcast Store. Uh, <laughs> dot dot <net>. com. <laughs> <laughs> dot inc. <laughs> if you don't know already, I'm like, it's the Lawfare Store. Dot com. Just Google mugs and Lawfare. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, Please make sure to leave us a rating and a review and download the report so you can start listening to that, which is going to be great. Our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. The show was produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by Joe Biden and his grunge remake of The Way We Were. Ooh, <laughs> weird. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. works. He could do it. I don't think The Way We Were has piano, though. So what would Sophia do? Uh, well, she would definitely, you know, um, be on like just some like headbang in the background. Yeah, exactly. So that she would just, Sophia, you can't pop and play anything, let's be honest. <laughs> on behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.